Um, I would now like to introduce Maggie. Thank you, Gabriel. My name is Maggie. I am a compulsive overeater. I'd like to thank Roy for inviting me to be here this afternoon. Uh, Slight unseen and with story never heard. uh, So if you don't like what I have to say tonight, please don't blame Roy. Please don't blame me. Blame Ira. I don't know why it's Ira's fault, but it is. Roy and I agreed on that before the meeting. I want to welcome our newcomer, Katie. Glad to see you here, Monica. Congratulations on your 30 days. Um, I do like to say before I speak, if I can remember, that I am not a spokeswoman for Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Anything I say here tonight, or in fact anytime, anywhere, is just my opinion or my experience. Both of those are subject to change without notice. And uh, believe me, uh, they've changed a lot over the years. I know the story is uh, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I was a chocoholic. That's how I started. As a child, I was very thin, couldn't gain weight, family very worried. I was an invalid. Anything I wanted to eat, I was given, which was lots of chocolate. But I didn't begin paying for it until puberty. That's when it all hit for me. I gained the weight. I kept gaining weight. I couldn't lose the weight. I could lose the weight. I gained it back. I gained more. I lost less. I mean, pretty much everybody here ought to know the drill. As Chocolate was expanded from being my very, very favorite binge food. I included pretty much anything else that wasn't moving faster than I was. <laughs> and, um, which was really, I think, only the ice cream man. So, um, I could binge on anything. I didn't really choose to binge on anything, but I was capable of binging on anything. My favorite things were chocolate and uh, anything that had a lot of salt. I really loved salt. I have been known to pour salt into my hand out of the salt cellar and eat it. I used to have a little bit of bread with my mayonnaise, just the spoon in the jar. I'd have the bread on the side. The mayonnaise was the main dish. I, I, that's what satisfied for me the cravings that covered the feelings that I did not want to know from. You know, food for me numbed me. Now, I will say that compulsive overeating, in my opinion, Uh, runs in my family on my father's side. I did not catch it from them, and it's not their fault. Uh, The reason that I'm a compulsive overeater is because I really hate it all of my life, being in my own skin. I just wasn't comfortable. It didn't matter where I was or what I was doing or who I was with or who I was not with. I wasn't comfortable. And the discomfort was uncomfortable. And I wanted to make it stop. Food worked. I added a few other things to my repertory as I got older. But food was first, last, and always. So anyway, a lot of the feelings that got very uncomfortable started with puberty, right along with the fact that my body expanded uncontrollably at the time. And it was also physically very painful for me. I mentioned that I had been an invalid. I had open heart surgery twice as a child. And so when I went through puberty, it hurt. It hurt all the time as my body expanded and my scars had to stretch to make room for the way that my body was expanding. And I hated it. I hated every minute of it and I was uncomfortable every minute of it. And I ate as much as I could. I was uh, closely watched. Uh, My father always had something to say and we just didn't have the kinds of things in my house that I loved to eat. So 
the really serious aspect of the disease only started when I headed out for college and I didn't have any supervision and I had enough money to go to the place at college where you could eat 24-7. This location at my college, the mess hall, if you will, was called The Pit. <laughs> Very suitably, I thought. I felt like I was descending into the pit when I went downstairs into the pit to eat day, night, and whatever other time of day might exist. Um, that was also when I started the insane dieting routine, you know, not eating for five days. Doing, I mean, I had some really extraordinary dieting experiences. My favorite, I think, while I was in college was I ate these staggeringly large breakfasts. I would have four eggs, bacon, sausage, pancakes, Danish, and cereal. Then I would have coffee and juice. That was it until the next morning. I lost six pounds in four days. Worked for me. I thought. Um, There was more insanity ahead for me, however. I... um, I did the Stillman and the Atkins. I was never willing to spend the money to go to Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig. If if it cost money, I didn't go. I was a cheap compulsive overeater. What I ate was cheap. The way I ate was cheap. I was cheap when I ate. And I was cheap when I recovered. You know, it was just long, continuing cheapness. Um, (laughs) Once I got out of college and actually had to have a job (laughs) to support the habit, I, um, I developed a routine. I would die during the week and eat on the weekends. Insanity would begin sometime after 6.30 on Fridays, and it would not pass until Monday morning. I would go to the market Friday evening, along about 8 o'clock. I'd clear off the junk food shelves, and I would disappear into my house, my apartment, actually, and um, eat. I'd eat off the floor. I ate in the dark. I ate alone. Um, I cried all the time. I felt completely insane. That might go with the fact that I was completely insane behind the food. And I couldn't understand why my life didn't work and why I didn't get everything I ever wanted doing what I was doing. And um, in this apartment building, I had uh, I had a binge buddy. I had two binge buddies, actually. Um, both of them were more overweight than I was, so, of course, that made me feel good about myself. And it was very, very helpful. One of them, however, came to Overeaters Anonymous. I didn't know what that meant. I just saw that she'd lost a lot of weight. Now, I love this woman very much, but she had a necklace that really bothered me. And what bothered me about this necklace was that it said, Try God. I hated that necklace. And so when she came to me and said, I'd really like you to go to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous with me, I said, No, thanks. Several times. And then she said to me, you know, Maggie, it would really help me if you would come with me to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. And I thought, well, if it will help her, you know, sure. So I went. It was a very famous meeting. Roy and I have both been around long enough to remember it. Uh, Monday Night Wilshire and Hauser, and it's heyday. Hundreds of people in the room. And um, I hated it. My friend said to me that newcomers and visitors were going to be asked to stand up and identify themselves. And, of course, you know, 100-plus people in the room, I figured I'm the only one. I'm not doing this. I said, do I have to? She said, no. But when it came time for newcomers and visitors to stand, there were like 20 people standing. So I felt 
face in the crowd. And I stood up, and it came to be my turn, and I said, very perkily, not my normal manner, Hi, I'm Maggie, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I burst into hysterical tears and collapsed on the chair. And that, for me, was because it was the first time I had spoken the truth. It was not a comfortable truth, and it was not a truth that I really wanted to live with. At the end of the meeting, my friend gave me her 12 and 12 in her big book and suggested that I read them. I read them, I cried a lot, and I was infuriated because she'd highlighted all the wrong passages. You know, she'd missed the point. I really couldn't figure out why she didn't understand where the important passages were, and she'd highlighted the ones that she had highlighted. Anyway, I went to that meeting, and six weeks later, I quit smoking. I cannot explain this to you. I was, uh, I was a committed smoker, very, 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 very committed. I had quit twice and had no problem with the food, unlike most people. And uh, I watched two people die in two months from lung cancer. And so I just started postponing that next cigarette one minute at a time. I'd get up in the morning, and instead of the morning cigarettes, oh, you know, I'll have it when I get to the office. Well, I'll have it after my first cup of coffee. Well, I'll have it on my way to lunch. I'll have it after lunch. I'll have it when I get back to the office. I'll have it on the way home. I'll have it when I get home. I'll have it after dinner. I'll have it before I go to bed. I'll have it later. And, um, gee, see, in June it'll be 23 years. I haven't had it later yet. And, um, and I couldn't stop eating. First time in quitting smoking, I could not stop eating. That's when I discovered that nicotine is actually a saliva depressant. That's why we feel so hungry when we quit smoking, is that we salivate more, and the saliva makes us feel hungry. It gives us a sense of appetite, so we respond. I was salivating so much that I was drooling. I mean, I literally, I was drooling all the time. And the only way to control the drooling was to have something in my mouth. Food seemed like a logical alternative. So that's what I did. I also completely fixed my life. I did jury duty. I bought a house. I moved to the valley. I just had this perfect life, and I could not stop eating. Could not stop. And I found myself shortly after I had perfected my life. On the floor of the den in my new home, eating the remains of the four double bags of potato chips, which I had bought along with, you know, some salami, large jar of mayonnaise, a little bit of bread on the side, and a six-pack of tabs so I wouldn't gain weight. You know, I was very weight conscious. Um, I, could, I just couldn't stop crying. It was 11.30 at night. And I called that friend of mine with a bad necklace at 11.30 at night because... I had no consideration for the people, and the fact that she was probably asleep was just not an issue for me. So I called her, I woke her up, and I said, you know that place you took me to back in May, I think I need to go again. And she said, that's nice, go alone, and hung up. It took me until the next Thursday to get to a meeting in the Valley that no longer exists, Thursday night, Sylvan and Cedros, also a hundred-person meeting in those days. I went to the newcomer meeting, but I stopped at Pop and Taco on the way. I felt just like I belonged because all the other newcomers binged on the way, too. So I thought, oh, phew, I'm in the right place. Um, we had a newcomers meeting. I went into the big meeting. I stood up, and I stated my name and my disease, and I kept coming back. The other wonderful thing, there were two things that happened that night, in addition to that, that were really wonderful for me. Uh, the speaker that night was... Um, a woman that those of us who've been around a long time knew, um, Jean 
had 15 years at that time, and I listened to her, and I thought to myself, having read little bits of the big book, while arguing with the highlighting, well, she's short, she's old, if she can do it, so can I. I told her that a year later. So. And a woman got up and spoke it from the podium. And she laughed. She thought it was just great that all the newcomers that night had less weight to lose than she did when she came in. And she was just laughing all the way through her pitch. And my friend who had 12-stepped me talked about a sponsor. And she said, well, when you find, to get a sponsor, you find somebody who has what you want, and they do what they did to get it. And I said, what does that mean? She said, when you find somebody who has what you want, you'll know. And I wanted what that woman had. I wanted to laugh, because I just didn't. I screamed, I cried, I moaned, I fetched. I did a lot of things. Laughing was not on the list. Anywhere. Not anywhere. And I thought, all right. So I went up and I said, with terror, terror in my heart, I said, will you be my sponsor? And she said, sure, and handed me her card with a phone number and said, call me. Well, highly likely. Uh, I went home and the disease argued with me all night. And when I got up in the morning to call her, the disease was saying things like, she doesn't remember who you are. She doesn't want to hear from you. She doesn't have time for this. What's she going to say? Don't eat. And I listened to that like it was a ticker tape parade going through my mind. And I picked up the phone and I dialed her number. And she picked up the phone and I said, hi, we met last night at the meeting. And she said, how are you today? I said, well, I'd like to know um, what this absence thing is. So could you tell me what to eat and how to work the steps and how soon can I carry the message? That was my first question. <laughs> that was her response. Yeah, she laughed too. She said, uh, well, I don't know how you should eat, but I'll tell you how I eat. And uh, the steps you will have to discover in the course of continuing to come back to meetings and reading the literature. And uh, put a pin in carrying the message for a while. <laughs> and basically my relationship with this sponsor, and I, I owe her my life, was that I would call her, oh, seven times a day. She used to have to go on the road for business. That was before cell phones to get away from me. I mean, I, I just was always calling. And I was always calling about nothing much. And I was always hysterical about it. I was completely hysterical about nothing much. And she would just laugh and laugh. She never said anything like, get a grip or poor thing, nothing. She would just laugh. And then she'd hang up. And then I would be left with my stuff. And the fact that she was not willing to take it seriously. And I was so hurt and frequently offended. But I didn't eat. I did in the beginning. I should say that. I did not abstain from day one. I wanted to. She had abstained from day one. She'd gotten sober from day one. And I thought, you know, that's what I was supposed to do. And I didn't do it. I was raised in a home where I was taught, if I just exercised a little self-control, I could have a little bit of everything, no prob. There are people in these rooms who do that. Bless them. Great. Wish I could. Can't. Had to very slowly take things off my list. Um, my sponsor encouraged me to create an absence for myself that I was going to be able to do one day at a time pretty much forever and not have to make drastic reconstruction while down the road a piece. And I said to her, but I can't, you know, never eat bread, pizza, and chocolate again for the rest of my life. And she said, well, you don't have to not eat them for the rest of your life. What, can you possibly not eat them today? 
I said, yeah, I cannot eat it today. I cannot eat it today. And um, that is how my absence began. And the hysteria remained for a long time. It got worse, actually, when she moved about uh, 15 months, 16 months into my recovery. She moved up north. And I went, was invited to her farewell party, and I went, and I just sat in a chair and cried all night. I couldn't, I couldn't have a good time. She, everybody was coming by, patting me on the head, keep coming back. And uh, I just, all I could do was cry, and I kept calling her. She moved to uh, Mendocino. I didn't care about the phone bills. I called her anyway. I did eventually get another sponsor, but it was hard. It was very hard for me to let go of her and of what she taught me. And she was a great gift in my life. If you do not have a sponsor for a newcomer, you know, please get one. If it doesn't work out, please get another one. If it doesn't work out, please get another one. Just find one. You know, and then, of course, the real trick to having a sponsor, call them. I can't tell you how many people. Well, I haven't talked to my sponsor in oh, a year, six months, a month. My sponsors constantly, when they see me, say, I'm really sorry I haven't called. I said, you know, guess who's it hurt? who is it hurting? Me? You? What? You, know, you do what you have to do. I, on the other hand, also now have to apologize for not calling my sponsor enough. So, you know, what goes around comes around. What can I tell you? Um... Once the food was removed, and that took about two and almost a half years for me, I abstained, but it was an issue. I kept thinking about the food a lot. I just kept thinking about it, lots and lots and lots. And for me, that just meant that the surrender was not deep enough for me to find a comfortable place. And um, after two and a half years, it did come. I was very grateful. I was going on a trip to Greece and then to France, and I knew that my regular abstinence was no longer going to be possible, that I was going to have to be willing to eat things that I didn't normally eat. And that was just going to have to be okay, because I wasn't going to be in charge. In one country, I wasn't even going to speak the language. So I was going to be like, well, I don't know. (laughs) Here it goes. And that's what I said to God. I said, you know, if you're not in charge, I'm dead. I'm dead. That's it. It's over. You know, no diet sodas, no sweet and low. I brought my own. But still in all, it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. I had a couple of experiences with the God thing. I like to tell about that trip because I didn't, I went to Crete. I couldn't, I don't travel well. So I went to the one place where I thought I could stay for a while. And uh, it was not an absolutely thrilling experience, but there were a couple of things. Um, I got really lonely. I'd taken my tape recorder and my tapes, and I had my books. There were no meetings. And I prayed every day and I listened to tapes, but I really felt lonely because I didn't speak Greek and pretty much nobody on Crete spoke English and it was just lonely. And I got, my my normal surrender position is face down on the floor. I don't surrender well on my knees. I mean, I get so far on my knees, but I get all the way face down on the floor. And that was where I was, face down on the floor. I said, you are, let me just say this to you, God, you are not enough. You are not enough. I need to talk to somebody. Now! So, I went to this big tourist trap in the capital of, of uh, Crete, which is Heraclean. And I, ha- I knew I had to go there, but I had just been putting it off. And I decided, okay, fine, I'm going to go today. So I drove over, and I went in, and I had a bad attitude, and I'm walking through a tunnel that had no light. I don't know why the light was out or whatever, but I bumped into somebody. And I knocked them down, and I helped pick them up, and I said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, let me help you. And when we got outside, 
It was a woman who'd been seated next to me on the plane from New York to Athens. And I said, please let me take you to dinner. Please let me take you. Please let me take you to dinner. And she did. And it was great. And it was a reminder that the need is met when the need is great. And it's, it's, it was great. Then there was the, um, there was the airport. <laughs> uh, I was supposed to leave. I had a connecting flight from Athens to Paris. I had to leave Iraqli, and I was there in the middle of the Easter season, so there was, you know, planes, trains, boats, automobiles, the only way off the island, you know, basically plane and boat, all booked solid. So I got to the airport. I confirmed my reservation the day before. I saw that there were a lot of people at the gate, so I thought, okay, I'll go, I'll go turn my rental car in first. I took care of that. I left my purse when I saw that the people had disappeared and, and left my bags and went over with my ticket. Well, of course, the 8 o'clock flight was actually 7.15, even though they'd confirmed 8 o'clock the previous day. They were overbooked by 20 people, and I was the only one who didn't speak Greek. So everybody was yelling at the ticket guy, and I'm trying to say to him, you know, hello. <laughs> and he was really overwhelmed, and I went over into a corner, and I said, all right, God, I cannot abstain and stay sober another day if I don't get out of here. Sorry, can't do it. Need to get out now. Went back over, very calm. Went over to the guy and said, excuse me, I have to get this flight out of Iraqli and going to Athens because if I don't get it, I'll miss my flight to uh, Paris and I have to be in Paris tonight. No seats! I said, let me try this again. If I do not make this flight from Iraqli to Athens, then I can't make my connecting flight to Paris and it is extremely urgent that I be in Paris tonight. No seats, I said one more time. If I do not make this flight from Heraclean to Crete, I cannot make my connecting flight from Athens to Paris, and it is a matter of life and death that I be in Paris tonight. Well, my ticket was across the airport at the Avis counter. I must have brought broken world records. I got back there. I turned around. I came back. My suitcases had disappeared. The guy handed me a boarding pass. Two big Greek guys picked me up under each elbow, ran me out, up on the tarmac, up the steps of the plane, threw me in the last seat, door closed, plane took off. And I thought, okay. Now, when I got to Paris, I had no hotel room. I thought, all right, I can handle this. I speak the language. So I got a hotel room, and I'm walking to, as it turned out that night, in the AA meeting. There's an older couple across the way from me, and they cross the street and try to speak French. I said, I speak English. Does that help? They said, oh, yes, we're from Florida. I said, great. They said, yes, we've been traveling around the world, and we're here, and then we're going to Ireland, and then we're going home. We're wondering if you know where this church is. Well, it was the church where the AA meeting was. And I thought, okay, what are the chances? So even though it was not really polite, and it was breaking anonymity, and yada, yada, I turned to them, and I said, excuse me, would you happen to be friends with Bill Wilson? And... Um, Guy reached into his pocket, pulled out a medallion. He'd been sober 34 years. So sometimes when people talk about finding God in a parking place, which I never have, I always have to walk a mile. When people talk about God giving them relationships, never happens to me. I always get my own, and they're horrendous. You know, when God talks about raises, I work for myself, so you know how badly that goes. I still have this point of reference. I can look at that trip and say, you know, if it weren't for God, I'd be dead. I do want you to know I missed that plane twice, trying to get from Virginia to New York. 
two missed planes. The first one was canceled. The second one that came in, I was on the phone complaining. So I missed the one that came in to rescue me from the one that was canceled. I thought, all right, payback. It's a bitch. So in all this time, and I'm going to wrap it up very quickly, um, that was a long time ago, and it's been a long time since. The road has gotten very, very different. I went through a period at eight years of absence, where uh, eight and a half, actually, where I discovered, much to my great relief, that there was no God. I woke up one morning, and that was the first thought, and I felt great. And I got judged. I didn't talk about it here. very much. After the first or second time, when people started lecturing me, I said, okay, I won't talk about it here. And uh, it took a few years and a lot of outside help. I didn't get much help here. I did for my sponsor, but that was about it. Um, to find my way back into a belief. What I had had to let go of is what I came here with. I didn't have a belief in God when I came to Overeaters Anonymous. And what I did was I turned God into uh, my late earthly father, a man who was uh, withholding and judgmental. And uh, I lived waiting for the other shoe to drop. And bless him. But I didn't need that in God. I thought I did, but I didn't. And so what that loss of faith did for me was make it possible for me to find a God who's always on my side. I don't have to worry that he's going to get unhappy with me if I do something wrong. You know, I don't look at him as Santa Claus anymore. I don't think he's going to give me parking places, although I got one across the street today. And uh, I don't think he'll give me relationships or winning lottery tickets or any of that stuff anymore. I had to give it up for me. For me. And in that way, I have found peace in my relationship with my higher power which was critical because when I had 10 years, I became a mother. I did not become a wife at any point, but I did become a mother. And uh, my son will be 12 at the end of this month, and that has been um, a remarkable journey. I went from having 10 years to feeling like I had none. Um, I, I taught him early when he wanted to taste my food what a bite looked like. Very little. Mom, can I try your food? Small bite. You know, because what's mine is mine. I don't share. I'm bad in Chinese restaurants. You know, don't take me. If it's mine, it's got my name on it. All of it. Don't touch it. <laughs> so, I, you know, I know what my share is, and I don't share it. So, that's really my theory and my philosophy and my practice, I might add, up until now. Um, it required a drastic change in lifestyle. All my friends who said, you can't possibly imagine how different your life was going to be, were right. And now I get to pass that on with my friends who have their first children. And I say, you can't possibly imagine how much your life will change. Um, and if you really want this thing, it will be a good thing. And if you don't, it's going to be really, really hard. <laughs> um, being a single mom has posed a lot of challenges. And, uh, and it continues to pose a lot of challenges. And he's only 12. You know, we haven't done the teenage thing yet. Uh, but we've done the terrible twos, threes, fours, fives, and sixes. Really didn't get good until he was seven. Um, and I don't really like babies that much either. I like them better when they can walk and talk. The You know, that baby thing, just not my thing. Um, so, you know, people are very good at that. I, I admire it. For me, it was an endurance test. How soon can he walk? How soon can he talk? Let's go. <laughs> he was walking early, boy, but he talked late. Lazy, lazy, lazy talker, but he's made up for it over the last uh, 10 years. Um, it's a great blessing to me. I came here fearful and angry. I didn't want you to get close to me because I didn't want you to see who I was because I knew when you saw me, you weren't going to like me. So the weight was about that, the food was about that, and the behavior was about that. 
I was um, angry. I acted angry. I acted belligerent because that helped keep you at a greater distance from me. And I will tell you, it's still not easy to get close to me. I won't make that. I won't claim that it is. Oh, I've just become this wonderfully huggable human being. I'm no three, but uh, it wasn't possible to get close to me before, and it is possible to get close to me now. I came in here, and I hated my mother. It took three years before I made amends to her. And um, I'm going to have dinner with her tonight. She lives just down the street. And um, when I was still new, I heard a woman at an AA meeting talk about the death of her father. And she talked about how much she missed him, but that, in fact, everything that they wanted to say to each other, you know, I love you, you're fabulous, God, you just drive me nuts, they had said. And all the stuff they wanted to do together, like, you know, Disney World, World Series, Super Bowl, they'd done all that. So she was able to say, I'm sorry, there won't be more. But we were complete. We were done. We were up to date. And I listened to her sobbing, sobbing. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, Gail, I hope to God my mother lives long enough into my recovery that I can have something like that with her. And I do. It would never have occurred to me to ask for it when I came here. I did not want a good relationship with her. I didn't like her. And now I love her. And I am capable of having a relationship with her, which I wasn't. I was not capable of having a relationship with anybody. You know, I used to cry when I came in and say to a guy I knew, why can't I be married and have kids? That's all I've ever wanted. And he said to me, Maggie, the reason you don't have these things is you're not fit which really hurt my feelings, and was true. I was not fit. I was not fit. And it's been a long road, and I have every hope and expectation that it will continue to be, get longer and longer and longer, one day at a time. So I hope you all keep coming back. Thank you. I stopped early. Okay. How does the question thing work? However you want. I will. Thank you. Gabriel? Thank you for your share. Uh, could you tell us more about the amends process to your mother? Uh, mm. I'm assuming perhaps you fell into the mentality of the defiant two-year-old stomping his It's not my job. I wasn't asked to be born. You know, that sort of thing. Well, my poor mother, I, um, I had my first surgery when I was 18 months old. And in those days, way back in the dark ages, um, parents were not allowed to stay overnight with their kids in the hospital. In fact, my mother wasn't allowed to be around me for three weeks. She could see me through a one-way mirror, and I was on my own as far as I knew. She was nowhere in sight. When she and my grandmother came to pick me up, uh, I went directly to my grandmother. I didn't talk to my mother for a month after that. Um, And I told her when I made amends, I said, you know, Mom, it's like I started adolescence at 18 months, and I came out at 30. Long run. You know, a lot of water under the bridge. For me, I had an enormous amount of guilt and remorse over my conduct toward her, with good cause. I had been a bitch. There's just no other way to put it. I had called her names. I had made her cry. I was proud of my ability to make her cry. I had insulted her. I had done everything I possibly could to hurt her feelings. And it was a big payback for something that was not her fault. But who cared? (laughs) No, I was... Very young when it started, and I was really a grown-up when it was over, and in between I was full of the disease. And that's not an excuse. That is not an excuse. 
And I had to go through a chapter and verse. And I will tell you, she did not want to hear it. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry. No problem. And it was no problem for her. It was just a problem for me to try to get through it. And there were still rocky times ahead. I can't say there weren't. And I can tell you that when I became a mother, it was like going back to when I was 18 months old. I just wanted to shake her till her teeth rattled sometimes, you know. And we had to go through some of that process again. But it was a lot faster because I was able to be clear, because I was clear what the problem was, because I wasn't eating and I wasn't 18 months old. I had all the information and I could get it out on the table in a civilized manner, not necessarily warm and soft and cuddly one more time. Um, Many years ago, I wrote her a letter. She was on vacation. And I wrote her a long letter and I said, Dear Mom, I just want to thank you for always being on my side and always being my friend. I didn't want you to be my friend and I didn't want you on my side. I didn't care to have you anywhere near me and you still stuck close. I couldn't make you leave. And on and on and on, pretty much in that vein. And, you know, I finished saying I love you. And then I put a P.S. I said, please hold on to this letter so that the next time I act like a jerk, you can just hold it up and remind me who you are in my life. Does that answer your question? Okay, can I talk more about my higher power and how I came to believe that he was on my side? Do we have a copy of Came to Believe here? Is there any literature? Okay. No literature. We don't have Came to Believe? Okay. (laughs) I don't think we have time for that. Um, (coughs) Came to Believe was more helpful to me than the big book on 12 and 12 combined in my early days. And in that book, if you have a copy or can borrow a copy or buy a copy. There is a, um, there is a, I think it's chapter 8, that starts with uh, a woman writing about her experience and her definition of her higher power. And she refers to him as her friend. And it was that definition that I tried for a long time to embrace. But as long as I held on to the old idea of he's just waiting for me to make one mistake for something really rotten to happen. And when I believed that all the good stuff came from God, I had to believe that all the bad stuff came from God. And I had to give all of that up, which is very hard for people here. It was absolutely necessary for me. I was going to die behind the idea that I wasn't good enough for God. It was bad enough that I wasn't good enough for my father. I really could not afford to not be good enough for God. And the process I, I... went through, involved, as I said, being out, going outside the program. Um, I was given some literature, which I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. I won't talk about it from the podium. That was not program literature. And I acquired a spiritual advisor that is not the same as a sponsor, and it was not my sponsor, and it was not someone in the program. It's actually a program offered, oddly enough, by the Archdiocese of uh, Los Angeles. At least it was at the time. And you don't have to be Catholic to take advantage of it, and you don't have to convert. That's not why they're there. They're just there to help you to achieve your spiritual goals. And, you know, they guide you through techniques that they themselves have used or anything else you would like to do. They're really completely willing. And that took time for me. But the encouragement that I had from these people always, and from my sponsor in this program, who had hit the wall at eight and a half herself, um, was that this too would pass. And it did. But it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work, and it took 
a lot of not talking about it in meetings, a lot of not being able, not having a large group of people I could talk about it with because they didn't want to hear it. I was treated a lot in the beginning when I was talking about it like I had cooties. Don't sit next to her, you could catch it. Don't talk to her about it, you could catch it. Uh, I don't think anybody caught it from me, but I don't actually know. Um, bless you. And I didn't catch it from anybody. It was my path. My path was to let go of a God that didn't work for me and find one who did. And the thing I think that supported me the most in the ABCs as we read chapter 5, it ends with that God could and would if he were sought. It does not say that God could and would if he were found. So I didn't have to find him, but I did have to seek him or her or them or it or whatever. The seeking kept me sane. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. What happened to the baggage in Greece? You know what? It actually made it to Athens and it made it to Paris, too. I did have lost luggage. I have had lost luggage abstaining in, <laughs> in the program, but that was not the occasion. The luggage was already on the plane. I don't know how, when, where, why, but it was actually there. It was not delayed, and it went straight through to Paris. It was there when I got off the plane and could not get into my hotel. So that was that. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. Talk a lot about God. How do you maintain your spirituality and your higher power contact when shit hits the fan? Oh well, my uh, how do I maintain my spiritual essence when the shit hits the fan? Um, that's daily practice. If I don't practice every day, then I'm really ill-equipped when the shit hits the fan. Um, I have been around, I guess, a couple of years, and I had to get another sponsor in my other program, and, and uh, she asked me if I kneeled when I prayed, and I said, no, I don't. I talk to God in the shower because Jews don't kneel. And she said, I'm Jewish, I kneel, so will you. And that ended my talking to God from my feet. So ever since then, I roll out of bed in the morning, and I hit the floor, and the first thing that I say is the third step prayer, which has become really sort of my favorite prayer. It's a long form of what I heard once in the meeting, and I hit my knees and say, whatever. Whatever, which is really fine. And um, I do uh, a tenth step every night, a written tenth step. I remember somebody hearing somebody from a program who was quite elderly because the question was, do you write your tenth steps every night? And he said, if I don't write them, I forget them. And uh, that's sort of how I feel. If I don't write them, then I don't sleep. That's sort of my problem. So I write a, a tenth step, very simple, just a list of what went well and what didn't go quite so hot and might need some fixing tomorrow. Um, so I don't forget, and I take care of business, and I clean up after myself so I don't have a lot of debris cluttering my feet when I have to run to get out of the way of the trouble that's coming my way. Um, the other thing, I think, is staying in reasonably frequent contact with a sponsor. Um, I once heard the question asked, you know, how often do you need to talk to your sponsor? And the answer was, often enough so that when you call and you're in trouble, the first thing your sponsor says is not, who is this? <laughs> made sense to me you know and also you don't have to catch them up on oh I don't know six months of history leading up to this particular moment of tragedy in your life you know regular contact with, with a sponsor also helps does that answer the question okay yeah Monica what's my food plan well good question my food plan is uh, three meals a day and nothing in between um, I avoid 
as I was suggested by my first sponsor. Her food plan was three meals a day, and she avoided her individual binge foods. I said, what's a binge food? I don't know. I could binge on anything. She said, a binge food is where one is too many and a hundred isn't enough. And I knew what those were right away. And I will say that the food plan has probably evolved over time. I still maintain three meals a day. Whether I'm hungry or not, I eat something three times a day. Um... And I don't eat my, you know, my binge foods. I don't eat pizza. I haven't had pizza in 22 years. I don't eat chocolate. I don't eat candy. I don't eat cake. I don't, I, you know, the sugar doesn't really, the sugar only bothers me because I act like I'm drunk when I eat it. It's not addictive for me. The, the taste of chocolate is what's addictive for me, not the experience of sugar. It just makes me take a nap. Um, what else can I tell you about it? And I don't share. That's really, <laughs> it's mine is mine, and if it's on my plate, don't touch it. You're welcome. Boy, not quite. Yeah. When I quit smoking. <laughs> I've watched my friends go through this abstaining, and it has never been pretty. Um, I really, I, I think I gave you chapter and verse about the quitting smoking, because for me, it really was getting out and just saying, later. It was always about later. I'll have it later. And it took two months before the craving passed the last time. I quit. The first time, I was over it. First time in 48 hours and the second time in a week. Two months, you know, with the drooling and the eating. And, <laughs> um, and of course, I've become a hideously reformed smoker. No smoking in my office, no smoking in my car, no smoking in my house, you know. Really worked on to Smokers Anonymous meeting. I do not know anything about it. And I can't share about that. I wish I could. Sorry. Yeah. Thank Well, I don't think I ever made that decision. I was completely insane. I was going in 400 directions all at the same time. I was trying to abstain and work a program and go to meetings and work the steps and call my sponsor and, you know, blah, 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 and show up for work and get the job done. For me, the only experience that I have with this is just putting one foot in front of the other because in the early days, the fog takes time to lift. So deciding, you know, who I want to be when I grow up when I'm abstaining was a lot different from deciding who I wanted to be when I was nuts. And it has been revised. I had about four, five years, almost, well, four and a half years of abstinence. And I quit a job and a career in which I was enormously successful because I burned out. And the reason I burned out was because I had started doing that job in a manner consistent with being insane. And I was not really able to back away from that. I didn't know how, and I wasn't really being allowed. The people around me expected me to do it a certain way, and I didn't want to do it that way anymore. So I had to step out of that. I tried another business that failed. I took a job on the other end of my business from the one I used to work in. I hated it the day I showed up. I stayed eight months, and then I left, and I started my own business. I've been in that for 16 years, 16 and a half. Um, so... And that has not gone the way I expected, wanted, anticipated, or would have liked all the time either. But I can make decisions today in conjunction with my higher power, writing about it, talking with my sponsor, asking people who have experience walking this road ahead of me, you know, on my knees and face down on the floor. 
You know, it's a series of things. It's really important not to be in a hurry. I remember when my first sponsor, could I get to stop now, when my first sponsor said, time, it's all going to come around in time. I said, but I'm in a hurry. It's going to take time. Well, how about next week? It's going to take time. Do you think I can do it when I have a year? It's going to take time. You know, either she laughed or told me it was going to take time. That was basically her repertory. And, you know, it's just going to take some time because who you think you want to be today may not be who you really want to be, what, who, what is in your heart, what is in your soul, and, you know, what lies ahead of you one step at a time. Thanks.